You're listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live, with your hosts, Eric Provoznik, Jim Culver, Marty Zamora, and Christine Leninger. This is Mike Agavino, executive producer of the Death of Journalism podcast, hosted by John Ziegler. You're on All Over the Place, where the fun sanity never ends. Hello, welcome back to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. I'm your host, Eric Provoznik. And with tonight, Jim Culver, Marty Zamora back in the house. Marty. Hello. hello. Christine going to be bipping in and out tonight. She's more she's playing the part of producer more so this evening than not. Get with us in spirit. And with us tonight, we, we are uh, re-welcoming to the show a, a guy who through the years uh, has uh, educated so many of us on so many uh, variety of topics. And most recently with his podcast, The Death of Journalism, keeping keeping the DeSantis supporters as sane as possible as we possibly can as we got through the GOP race. I also want to thank and or blame our guest for uh, me not being able to pronounce the one of the candidates. I just know him as fake Obama Swami. So let's welcome in and back to all over the place, John Ziegler. Welcome, John. Hey, Eric. Good to talk to you as always. Fake Obama. So I, I seriously don't know the guy's real name. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, for those that don't listen to the death of journalism, I do not refer to uh, Vafake Obama Swami by anything other than Vafake Obama Swami, and I, I think it's probably the best of all the nicknames that have been given to him. I don't, I don't think it's close. It's a nickname that I, I'm sure that at one point that uh, Trump would just love to throw and uh, belittle everybody. <laughs> that he, you should have copyrighted, then start making some, some dough off of, of President Trump. Uh, there's no question that if the fake had gotten enough traction to where Trump decided that he needed to dump on him, the fake Obama Swami would have been one of the top options for, for Trump. I don't think there's any question about that. Well, I'm loving it. And, uh, you know, then th- this uh, the show and well, another, another thing, John, John keeps us up to speed with the NFL and the, the wussification. We're going to get to that a little bit later and college football, NIL and just uh the the frame, framing Paterno and uh, and I want we're going to get to that later too with the Frank report in, in relation to uh, what what you all the awesome uh, research that you've done with that one and, and keeping that afloat and uh, hopefully passing the torch to somebody else who will run with it even further. But uh, death of journalism, although uh, there is the the potential black swan, but uh, right now uh, John is uh, going to be potentially. Getting out of the public eye, John, and just kind of like stepping back for a little while now. And uh... <clears throat> well, no, I mean, I uh, have, I guess I made a soft announcement uh, a couple months ago because I knew exactly how the Republican primary process was going to go. That um, I, I said at the time, somewhere around the Super Bowl, and then I defined it to uh, the second episode after the Super Bowl, which would be out February 15th. That's going to be my last podcast episode. And that I would be dropping out of public life at the same time, because I just, I just can't, I can't handle it. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. Uh, especially when there, there's nothing in it really for me. And I, I see that where this is going for the country and I'm just, I can't keep banging my head against the wall. And I'm, and, um, and so I, I made that, um, I guess you'd call it an announcement on my podcast in the context of the strangest, thing that has ever occurred to me. And Eric, you know my life pretty well. I've had a lot of really weird things occur. And so to say this is the strangest is really saying something. But for the last two years on 
almost, not quite, a constant basis, I have been going through this incredibly arduous circumstance that promised to change the trajectory dramatically of my career. And a couple months ago, I, I realized this, this is just not, despite what I'm being told, this is not going to happen. And at that time, I, st I didn't know for sure what the hell the last two years had been. I, I didn't know whether it was possible that I was somehow being the victim of a massive Manti, Manti Teo like catfishing <laughs> expedition. Um, uh, I still don't to this moment know a thousand percent what's been going on, but I, you know, I keep being told, but even as of today, I keep being told that this thing is happening and that it's imminent. I have no, at this moment, reason to believe that. That's why I'm still planning on doing what I already announced as far as leaving public life. But I, I at least want to leave open that <laughs> black swan event that somebody's actually you know, telling me the truth and that this will actually come to fruition. Because if it does uh, come to fruition, Eric, and that's a big if, if it were, you're going to look back on this interview and you're going to, and your mind is going to be blown. I can assure you, I can assure you, we're not talking about, we're not talking about a little thing here. We're not talking about like a, you know, a, a, a soft left turn at a stoplight, right? We're talking about a different planet, right? Different planet. Um, flying cars. Are we talking about flying cars? Kind we of might be talking about, we might be talking flying cars here. I mean, this is, this is, uh, you've um, been hinting at the, I mean, I know you've brought it up on, on uh, death of journalism uh, a, a few times. So, you know, Fingers crossed, and, and so the erase the name from off, from off the tombstone be like James Brown. We're going to put that coat on you on February 15th, <laughs> again, and then again, just throw it off. Eric, mentally, Eric, I am still very much in the um, I'm I'm out February 15th. So um, I just I just don't want to be accused of pulling a Brett Favre or something if um, if somehow this finally happens or right pull, under pulling in Eagles and the the long farewell tour. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's more of a kiss moment at the Coliseum, at Nassau Coliseum. This is it. And you know, will, will there be an avatar, John Ziegler? <laughs> no, but I, I, I mean, I'm a very straightforward guy. I, I mean, I'm, I probably shouldn't even be talking about any of this at all. But um, you know, you and I have known each other a long time, so I just want to make sure I'm covered in case something actually does happen that would be mind-blowing and you don't go john what the hell was that <laughs> you know two weeks ago you told us you were you were leaving public life and 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 now you know this very different thing has happened so that is still where very much where i am uh my head is at um and but i at least have to acknowledge there is a black swan possibility that's still out there and 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 frankly Anybody else in my position, it wouldn't be a possibility. You know, they would be telling you that this is going to happen. That's what, because that's what I'm being told. But I've been told that many, many times over the last two years and, and nothing has actually transpired as of yet. So me being the cynic and the skeptic that I am, I have to, I have to maintain that mindset. Well, it wouldn't be you without that, that little layer, the, the uh, keeping positive, but with the cynical, yes, but. Uh, just I, we'll, we'll keep this in as uh, semi originally uh, intended and we can revise as necessary down the line. But Irish wake style, I just wanted to let you know that you are going to be missed uh, if, if, if Black Swan event uh, notwithstanding. 
you uh, like everything I talked about at the top of the show, and as we've known each other through the years, incredibly grateful, and especially for the Paterno stuff. I, I know that that's a didn't go went sideways a lot for you, but it, it, that's I know uh, there's a, there's enough Penn Staters who appreciated that, and I certainly I, I I will miss all the knowledge you brought and insight that you helped me get through this this DeSantis thing quite a bit. So thank you. Eric, I, that really means a lot. I appreciate it. It's, you know, why I came on the show because you have been a supporter of, of mine for a very, very long time. And I really, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'm all the way back to uh, media malpractice, how Obama got elected and Palin was targeted. I remember you were very supportive of that movie that I made. That was probably the first time that I really burst on the scene nationally. And then, um, and then obviously, oh, my, my interviewing skills weren't quite what they are now, but, uh, but, uh, thank you for <laughs> saying something positive. <laughs> well, no, but I, I remember it well. We, we did an interview at the pool in Burbank, the pool. You know, where, yeah. where, where, where I was, where I was living at the time at, in the, the apartment complex. But, yeah. um, but anyway, uh, you know, and then bizarrely, of course, you, you have the Penn State connection, which took up an, an enormous amount of my life and probably destroyed what was left of my career because I got deeply, deeply embroiled in the entire Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal. And we did a, an epic podcast about that called With the Benefit of Hindsight, which I hope people will check out if they've not done so already, because it's probably the greatest work of my life. And it's also the work that ended my career. So that kind of shows you where we are in this day with that uh i i said years ago that you know there's, there's going to, you being a philly guy i want to make the rocky analogy and, and i think thinking of rocky three where he says you know just forget forget it rock and then apollo tells rocky no remember that because these guys are going to owe you an apology maybe not an apology forthcoming from the likes of espn who owe everyone an apology but uh talk to us a little bit about the, the frank report which is kind of mm -hmm. an investigative reporter who has come in and taken and kind of taken the torch from you and uh, could could vindicate uh, again very very positive mindset uh, with that one but he he's he's doing he's taking your work and and, uh, and taking it to a different level yeah this is a guy by the name of Frank Parlato who's a longtime investigative reporter and boy he is churning out an enormous amount of content um, I don't agree with all of it. Uh, I don't know that that would be possible for me to agree with all of it, but um, you know, he, he has taken on full bore the cause of Jerry Sandusky's innocence based upon largely my work and, and the work of a couple of other people. And um, you know, I, I wish him all the best. I, I, I don't think he's going to be successful. <laughs> uh, he has been successful in a couple of other much smaller stories where he has shown that he is very tenacious and, you know, understands that this is something that, you know, it, it's going to have to be a drip, drip, drip. Um, I, I'm not, I don't trust anybody, but I I don't trust Frank a hundred percent. I don't know what percentage I would put on it. He's already put out a, a couple of, one article in particular, he just put out that I told him not to do. And he did it anyway, because um, he was putting a lot of trust in someone I know to be insane. And so that, that I thought that was a red flag for me. So, um, but look, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I share all of his art. I'm guaranteed most of his traffic comes from me sharing his articles on, on Twitter and, and making other people aware 
of his existence. And I'm fine with that. I've always known, you know, pe people have a great misperception about my, my intent and my work in this entire case. And there are still people who laughably think that I'm somehow grifting off of Penn Staters or something insane, which could not be more ludicrous and further from the truth. I also don't care about uh, getting any credit should this thing by a miracle be fixed, because I've long ago accepted one, it's never going to be fixed because it's a perfect storm. But two, that if it ever did get fixed, I wouldn't get any credit. Uh, one, because for it to get fixed, somebody else would have to swoop in and, you know, pretend like they were the the savior. But also the media, if it ever got fixed, would need a scapegoat for an excuse for why they didn't fix it sooner. And I would be a large part of that scapegoat. I, I really believe that. And they would they would say, well, you know, if Ziegler wasn't such an asshole about it or if he had been a celebrity, uh, we would have believed him. None of which is true. They say asshole. I say tenacious. Okay. Right. right. But because, because I wasn't, you know, really nice all the time as I was getting crapped in my face and, and uh, watching this massive injustice happen, uh, you know, that'll be the excuse that they use. I, I mean, I know these people better than they do. And so I've already accepted again, one, it's never going to be fixed. And two, even if it did, I wouldn't get credit. So if, you know, somebody else is able to come along and fix it, more power to him. That that's great. I, you know, being honest about it, I don't think that Frank is is going to be able to do that. Not necessarily because there's something wrong with Frank. He's not a celebrity. He doesn't have a massive following. And like I said, I'm already questioning his judgment a little bit, but mainly because nobody would be capable of pulling this off. And no one knows that better than me because because the forces against you are just they're too large. They're too complete. The the storm is too perfect. There's just no way to do it. Um, but I can tell you with 100% certainty, I'm, I know I'm right. And, you know, you know, some people in my position, Eric, might uh, feel vindication by a guy like Frank coming along and, you know, taking on this cause. And I don't need vindication. I already know I'm right. But I got to tell you, I've pointed everyone I've pointed down, down the, the path of uh, with the benefit of, ben, with the benefit of hindsight podcast, They've come back and thanked me. We've been able to, thanks to you, we've opened minds. And that, that's you know, one at a time. Well, good to I, hear, Marty. I appreciate that. I yeah. appreciate that. So, so you went in highly skeptical and came out convinced? Well, sure. You know, I heard it on the mothership, so it must be true, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't have any other frame of reference. You know, there's a, a lot of creeps out there, so it seemed plausible. And, uh, you know, turns out, thanks to Eric, uh, I was turned in the right direction of, you know, any amount of mainstream media, you're not likely to get the truth. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I don't know what, there's no way to know this from a data standpoint, but Eric, anecdotally, I believe that our conversion rate of people who gave with the benefit of hindsight, a legitimate try. That's a very, very long podcast. I acknowledge it is a long, you know, I wouldn't call it a slog because there's a lot of entertainment in it too. I think, I mean, Liz Abib is my co-host and, you know, she and I have a, a very, very <laughs> interesting background, a long history together. And we have a, you know, a good chemistry at times, but we go at it at, at each other quite a bit as well. So there's some entertainment elements to it, but I would say our conversion rate has got to be in the 90 percentile or higher of people who give it a legitimate chance. 
and go and come away going almost universally. Not only am I convinced that that Zig is right, it's not close. That's probably the most amazing part of this. It's it's not close. And anybody I mean, looks, I, I'm around a lot of umpire. Well, I'm, as an umpire, I'm around a lot of you know, my brethren, and they see my those we're getting uh, to get getting our game ready, uh, and they they see the Penn State. Uh, license plate holder, the Jopa 409 license plate. Oh, Penn State, huh? And then you, you, you get the occasional jackass who makes the joke. I'm like, walk backwards with me for a second. <laughs> and just just open, again, opening one mind at a time. And like I said, not 90%. And everyone who's come back to me, I said, listen to the first episode. You don't like it after that. You're not even like, hmm. Then just give it up and I'm not going to be able to convince you. Right. But they've, they've all come back. Well, that, that makes me feel good. And, you know, Mike Agavino, our executive producer, deserves a lot of credit because he lost a lot of money on that podcast. Um, and so, so I mean, because we didn't even, at first, we didn't even run it with commercials. And we did, we independently produced it because we knew from the, you know, based upon the subject matter that that was really the only option. And so uh, there was a lot of work and resources that went into it. And I think we created the historical record um, you know, and whether that will ever be ex- accepted beyond a, a niche uh, following, I, I doubt it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't give up um, until it's totally over. And, you know, Jerry Sandusky is still alive. He just sent me a letter the other day about Frank Parlato, actually. Uh, you know, and so, um, you know, he's still in, in prison, but he's still kicking. So I think he'll probably be around for a, at least a little while longer. And so as long as he's still alive and the administrators are all still alive, that they, they went to prison for something that never happened, you know, the story still has at least a pulse. Well, here, here's something I mean to ask you since I saw Sound of Freedom last year. And uh, what do you think the possibilities are? Because you and I have talked about uh, not a documentary, but a, a narrative film with it. And with the, the uh, religious angle, with Dottie and Jerry being su- such are ardent Christians. Do you think the story could be told from that standpoint or a redemptive way? Well, the problem is it's a catch 22. Um, that's, you know, part of the perfect storm here. The answer to your question is yes, but it would have to be fixed first. <laughs> so yeah. if it ever got, so if it ever got fixed, there would be an, an, a, an absolute blockbuster Christian film to be, uh, to, to be sold and made, made and sold. Uh, regarding, you know, Jerry and Sadusky, Jerry Sandusky and his wife, Dottie, who I believe, I, and I've said this many times, I believe their Christianity facilitated this uh, travesty in yeah. a lot of different ways. In, they're, they're in multiple ways. Their Christianity played a huge role and, and probably the most obvious or the primary way in which it, it played a, a big role was that Dottie couldn't even... <laughs> In in our practice interviews for the Today Show interview with Matt Lauer, and and obviously during her testimony at trial, she couldn't even bring herself to call the accusers liars because in her interpretation of her religion, that was anti-Christian. And so there's this moment we have during while I'm prepping her for Matt Lauer in her house, and you know she's going down this path trying to figure out a way to answer a question I'm sure Lauer is going to ask her. And she just suddenly stops and she says, they're all liars. (laughs) And, um, 
And then she catches herself and she says, Oh, I can't say that. And like, like she had sinned or something. And, and I'm like, there's nothing wrong with you saying that, but she, she really believed that that was against her religion. And I think that leads to maybe there's so many, as you know, Eric, there's a thousand misconceptions about this case, but one of the many problems that the Sandusky Sandusky's had when these allegations hit is that they still love these kids these these now adult men who were accusing Jerry they were so confused they they didn't understand how this could be happening they thought it was a misunderstanding they thought these guys were going to come to their senses they thought there's no way they're ever going to testify under oath in open court these are good guys we know them we love them they love us they've been part of our family there's no way this is going to happen and of course that was out of naivete and you know when I was in prison with them together, the second time I interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison, it was a very telling moment for me when I asked both of them at the same time. And this was a very strategic question. I asked, when was the first moment you thought this might not turn out okay for us? When was the first moment? And Jerry, who's, you know, behind a screen, he's in an orange jumpsuit. He's hands are handcuffed to his waist. He can't even scratch his nose, starts bawling and starts talking about the reading of the verdicts being the first time that he thought that there was a possibility this might not turn out. Okay. And then, and then Dottie, Dottie tells the exact same story in even greater detail with even more clear cut tears streaming down her face. Same exact answer. And, and to me, as someone who knew the case very well and knows humanity, if you're guilty, there's literally a thousand answers to that question. <laughs> if you're innocent, especially if you believe Jesus is going to save you, there's only one answer, which is the reading of the verdicts. <laughs> and that's See, the this answer. This is why, uh, again, I, I don't begrudge Dottie or, or Jerry. Love thy enemy. I'm all for that as a Christian, but I'm also of the mindset Jesus in the temple. That's on. That's on the table as well. To go, go a little batshit crazy if you have to to defend yourself. Well, I would certainly be in that latter category because I I think that um, you know their naivete was taken advantage of all along in this story, and um, and so you know that was one of many many moments that I that was profound when it came to my interpretations of what happened here, that was really, that was the, the, the final nail in the coffin for me when it came to Jerry's innocence. I mean, I, I was 98% there before that question, but I even got out of prison and immediately called their defense attorney at the time, Joe Mandola, with whom I at that time had a good relationship. Well, I haven't talked to him in years now for good reasons, but uh, I, I immediately called Joe because I thought, all right, is there still a one in a million chance that this is somehow a setup, right? I mean, there's no way. I know what I just witnessed. There's just no way. But um, I'm just going to make sure. So I called Joe. And I say, Joe, I just asked Jerry and Dottie uh, together in prison, you know, what was the first moment they thought this might not turn out okay for them? Again, that's a very important and very specifically crafted question. What is the first moment you thought this might not turn out okay for us. I thought long and 
hard about that very simple question because I, I say to him, I asked that question, Joe, what do you think their answer was? And Joe paused. And I remember the pause because he, he was thinking about it. And he goes, was it the reading of the verdicts? And I'm like, there we go. Wow. There it is. They're innocent. Wow. I mean, uh, John, uh, for our audience, um, maybe uh, not to put a bow on it, but uh, since you are sailing off into the sunset, um, can you give our audience just a, a quick snippet of what you perceive to be the main motivation here? You know, motivation the, for me, oh, for, for me or for the, the Penn State Paterno Sandusky story? Uh, no, the motivation for the, uh, we'll call it the uh, massive media nonsense to uh, grab onto this and sink their teeth in and not want to let go and make sure this goes wrong for Sandusky and make sure we. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was not, a, Marty, this was, that. I'm glad you asked that. Okay, I, I, thank you for asking that question because I'm sure there are a lot of people who mis, misidentify what I do as somehow a conspiracy theory. I loathe conspiracy theories, always have throughout my entire life. It's one of my biggest problems with the Trumpification of the Republican Party is the embrace of crazy conspiracy theories. And it really drives me nuts, visit V, my stance on the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky case because I can't tell you how many people, their first reaction when they hear my stance on this on Twitter or wherever is they presume this is another wacky conspiracy theory. And I, you know, unfortunately, I can't really blame them because there's so many out there that are back crap crazy. And so it just drives me even nuttier when I get, you know, painted with the broad brush of, right-wing conspiracy theorists when I'm exactly the opposite. The conspiracy theorists in this case are the people who think that Penn State covered up for an assistant and former assistant coach for 20, 30, 40 years. That's the conspiracy theory. That is, that is a nonsensical, absurd conspiracy for which there is no evidence when there should be a mountain of evidence. So what happened here was not a conspiracy. This was a perfect storm, and I mean perfect storm, of self-interest that converged because of a series of unique circumstances. You have the fact that Joe Paterno was 84 years old, on the verge of retirement, and had just become the winningest coach in the history of college football. If you take that element out of this alone, you know, let's say Paterno had retired the year before. None of this happens. None of this because there's no fuel for the rocket ship. There's none. The paternal angle is the fuel is the media fuel for the first, the proof of this. The, and I, I know we, other th things we want to talk about. And I could talk about this all night, but, but the, the proof, proof of this, the proof of what I'm talking about with the change of the narrative and, and Joe Paterno's influence over it was sports illustrated. Now, remember when this story broke, 2011 sports illustrated was still king okay and it you know comes out once a week and it comes out it goes to bed editorially like noon on monday right so writers have until noon on monday back in the day to get still get something into sports illustrated that's the their general deadline this story broke on a friday night by saturday morning the next day the whole world knew that jerry sandusky 
was being charged and arrested and that the administrators uh, were following. And so the, the basics of the story were already known by that first Sports Illustrated after the story broke. And in that first Sports Illustrated, the only mention of Jerry Sadowski and Joe Paterno, or not, I don't even know that Paterno was really mentioned very much, was a back of the, the magazine article about Sandusky that when you read it now, sounds like they thought this was the last we're ever going to talk about this because this was such a minor story. Oh, by the way, remember Jerry Sadowski? Turns out we were fooled by him. Looks like he was a pedophile. This is horrible. But, you know, you know, basically that was it. There was nothing else in the entire magazine, uh, even though this story had broken two and a half days before deadline. But then in the ensuing week, Joe Paterno becomes the focus because that's the media fuel. Penn State panics. They fire him, effectively pleading guilty to everything in the media's eyes. And by the next Sports Illustrated, Paterno's on the cover. And the, the entire magazine is devoted to the same story with no new facts. None. There's nothing new except for the fact that Paterno got fired because of a media firestorm that began on that Monday when Sports Illustrated went to bed because the head of the state police answers a question and I, and there are many people who think he did this on purpose i don't know i have no idea but he answers a question about joe paterno's moral culpability in a way that gives the media something to hang on to and make this into a joe paterno story it was no longer a jerry sandusky remember him from 1986 he's been out of the game for over a decade well he he got arrested for being a pedophile. Now it's a holy crap, Joe Paterno, the winningest coach in history in college football, the beacon of moral goodness in college football, covered up for Jerry Sandusky for in, in a child sex abuse case, was told of a rape of a child and did nothing, all of which is bullcrap. But that that becomes the media narrative. And so, you know, ESPN led the way, the mothership, because that week, that week was a unique, a uniquely quiet week in the sports world. It's November, which back then was still a ratings sweeps month. There was baseball had just ended. Basketball was on strike. No one cares about hockey in, the, in early November. College basketball hadn't started. College football was in its lull before gearing up for the end of the season. That first week in November was uniquely quiet. And all of a sudden, ESPN got manna from heaven the ultimate greek tragedy of joe paterno being brought down a week just over a week after becoming the winningest coach in the history of college football that's what drove everything and what penn once penn state pled guilty by firing paterno and the president of the university graham spanier it was over i i believe at that point there's no going back there's there are things that could have potentially mitigated the injustice after that, but the, the, the avalanche is headed down the mountain in a way that's unstoppable. Once Joe Paterno was fired and Graham Spanier is fired, uh, you know, and what Louis free did with the free report the following year, just basically pushed the avalanche further down the mountain. Um, but by that point, Jerry Sandusky seven months later had already been convicted in a, in a Salem witch trial. And, there's no chance to reverse it because we never we never bothered to check the math on the story. That's the short version of what I did. Here's what happened. This is the way I described this to people who have no idea what I've done. 
So the media told us that this, you know, they knew the the answer to this very complex equation in two days. They they figured out what the answer is. And everyone said, oh, my God, that's a remarkable answer to this complex equation. And I looked at that equation and I said, you know, this doesn't look right. This just doesn't look right. I'm going to actually delve in and see whether the math is right. And I delved in for many years and I found out, guess what? Not only is the math not right, it's not even close to being right. It's totally wrong. And uh, and the media is too invested to ever correct it at this point. Yeah. Great. And now, now my blood pressure's up again. All right. Well, whatever. <laughs> and I was guilty I of that. That very thing I was guilty of when I heard they've they've fired uh, Spanner and, and Paterno. Uh, I thought, well, there must be some validity to it because – I mean, right. they're basically admitting it. There must be right. mountains of evidence. It, it must be a right. wrap. Why, why that was the key. Penn, Penn State, here's what happened. Penn State panicked. They, they yeah. crapped themselves, okay? In the midst of a massive media firestorm, they had a home football game that Saturday against Nebraska that was being aired on, you guessed it, ESPN. Okay. So, so there it's, it's, but so imagine what, what they're under. I mean, I have no sympathy for them at all, but this is what they were looking at. So we are three days away from having a home football game. That will be Joe Paterno's final home game. Cause he just announced stupidly on the advice of his, his idiot son, Scott, that he's announcing his retirement. That was, the, that was just, that was the final nail in the coffin. I think for Paterno when he announced his retirement, because then he made that game on Saturday even bigger than it was. And so that's a good, how do you have a massive celebration of over 50 years for Joe Paterno the very same week when Jerry Sadusky is, has just been arrested and two Penn state administrators are, uh, are being charged. And, you know, the, this is dominating the news in their minds basically they decided to chop off their own legs to stop the bleeding. And, um, and, yeah. and in doing so they were perceived as, as pleading guilty when in fact, none of these guys had any clue, none of the people on that board, none. And I've spoken to uh, board members who were there, you know, when this was decided, none of them had a clue. And, and let's be clear what, what happened here. The governor of the state, Tom Corbett, who was the attorney general when the Sandowski investigation began is a member of the board of trustees. Okay. So imagine you're a, you're a Penn state board member. No one's cared about who the Penn state board members are in your entire history on the board. Right now, all of a sudden you're the most important person in, in all of Pennsylvania, right? You're one of 32 people that have to make this decision as to what the hell are we going to do here? And you don't know, you don't know shit from shit. You don't have no idea. All you're hearing is in the media. And the governor of the state urges you to fire Paterno and the president who he hated, Graham Spanier. What are you going to do? What are you going to do in that panic situation? When, by the way, it wasn't even a roll call vote. It was, a, it, was, it was by acclamation. So basically, you had to stand up. Somebody had to stand up and say, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What are we doing here to the governor of the state? In the midst of a media panic, nobody did that because nobody was going to do that because that's just not 
human nature. And I, I frankly, and I've had, I've had battles with at least two of Jerry's lawyers that I think what Corbett did two of Jerry's lawyers. <laughs> I was say, only, only two of them that you battled with. You, no, you've no, had no, such what? a horrible time with all of those guys. Okay, okay, but, only two. Uh, well, no, but yeah. you're, you're, if you let me, two, uh, yeah, if you let me finish, I'll explain. Sorry. So uh, I've battled with two of his lawyers over the value of this being an appeal issue. I'm not a lawyer, but I know the law well enough and I've watched enough datelines well enough to know <laughs> that, that I have you know, enough to be dangerous. I'm telling you, a federal judge or even a Pennsylvania Supreme Court judge who hates Corbett would find it very interesting to look at the fact that the ultimate state actor, the governor of the state, urged Penn State's board to fire two of Jerry Sandusky's best witnesses, inherently discrediting them in an ensuing trial and making it impossible for Jerry Sandusky to put on a proper defense. That, to me, is a deadlock cinch appeal issue. I mean, they, both from the federal level as well as from the state level, when you have the ultimate state actor in the governor, Tom Corbett, doing that. Both times the lawyers have told me, yeah, I understand why you think that, blah, blah, blah. Let me look into it. And nothing ever happens. And, you know, to me, I mean, Jerry has maybe too many appeal issues. Uh, I really do believe that that's a problem because he throws so much against the wall. And I think these dimwits don't, you know, they, they can't focus on 12 different things. Sometimes when it comes to an appeal, having just one really good issue is better than having, you know, 12 really good issues. And um, so I would, I would love, I'm never going to get an answer to this. I would love somebody to tell me why the hell that's not a good appeal issue uh, because that's the state of Pennsylvania through the governor proactively taking away uh, the presumption of innocence as well as two key witnesses from the defendant. That is a new trial, in my opinion. Yep. Well, once again, John, thank you for, I mean, just folks, check out with the benefit of hindsight. Get your heads on straight. John did the work that no other journalist would do. So once again, thank you on that one, John. Quick break in the episode with a huge announcement. Maybe not the Black Swan event John's been mentioning, but the death of journalism's executive producer, Mike Agavino, has proposed an idea to potentially keep the podcast going. If you're interested in making a monthly pledge of $10 to continue the death of journalism as a subscription-based show, contact Mike at the below email. 10 bucks a month to keep hearing John's keen and one-of-a-kind insights and breakdowns flowing? Seems pretty no-brainer to me. Touch base with Mike. Let him know you're in with your pledge. Now back to the episode. So sticking with the football thing. Now, Marty, I, I know uh, uh, you, you've listened to some of John's uh, theories, and not theories, it, it, it's happening, but the, the wussification of the NFL. And oh, yeah. I want to set that up with, it doesn't seem consistent for the NFL to be wussifying itself as UFC is thriving, uh, you know, the mixed martial arts. The, the bloodlust is out there. So, Mar John, how do you figure? Why is the NFL wussifying itself? Definitely. When it's an audience for what people love about the NFL. Well, I can tell you that the UFC, uh, one of the main uh, main drivers of that not being, uh, we'll call it uh, watered down, 
is that Dana White does not give one single fuck. That's just who he is. Um, he was challenged. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think the 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 question was framed uh, about uh, you know uh, how long of a leash do you give your fighters uh, uh, on things they can say because you had the one fighter Strickland say something about transgender. And he said, leash, I, what are you talking about? I don't have a freaking leash. It's First Amendment, freedom of speech. And so I think that goes a long way to keeping, you know, at least that organization. I know it's not the only one, but keeping that one out of the pussification uh, realm. I can, I, I, the only thing I can think of in the NFL is, you know, they're scared to death of an avalanche of lawsuits, you know, but. Well, I, can't I think I can way. answer that question. I mean, there's a lot of different things going on here. First of all, I actually think that uh, Ultimate Fighting is is benefiting from the fact that the NFL is wussified. I think so. Uh, uh, sure. But, you know, that's that's part of that's that's part of it. But um, the NFL is um, is a self victim of being incredibly successful. There's no other. Think about everything else in American life, especially when it comes to media. We have gone from in a media, putting this in media terms, things started off as broadcasting. Then they went to narrow casting. Then they went to cult casting. Now we're into micro cult casting, right? Because that's where the money is. If you can find a, a small group of passionate people and you can milk the hell out of them, that's a good business model in today's day and age. The NFL is the only entity going in the opposite direction. They are broadening, broadening. They are going way, way beyond the core football fan. The Taylor Swift phenomenon is the ultimate example of this. And they're benefiting from it. Now, granted, they, they got lightning in a bottle because of Taylor Swift and the Chiefs uh, making the Super Bowl. I mean, this Super Bowl is probably going to be the most watched as far as number of eyeballs television event in sports history. And it's because the NFL has decided that, look, you know, for whatever reason, this is our business model. We are as broad as we can possibly be. And in order to be as broad as you can possibly be in today's day and age, you need to appeal or at least not offend virtually everybody. Right. And so we live in a world where violence is inherently looked at as bad, where concussions are seen as a existential threat to the National Football League, where the players and this is different from ultimate fighting. The players are massive celebrities making huge amounts of money where their union is incredibly powerful. And so. If you're Roger Goodell, and I don't agree with this. I'm just telling you what's going through his head, right? If you're Roger Goodell and you're the owners, you are protecting this golden goose with everything you have. And the the biggest threat to the National Football League in their minds is that football becomes seen as too dangerous to play. So they have to go overboard in order to make it seem as if football is not too dangerous. And I, I, I believe, and I have said on my podcast many times, and I'm sure there are people who think I'm crazy. I believe that within 10 to 15 years, 
the National Football League will be some form of flag football. Now, I don't know what that means, whether that means give it that just long, the huh? quarterback will be flagged. <laughs> What's that? I said you give it that you, long? You, you think it's going to be short? Six to eight. Well, it, all right, you know what? It could be shorter than that. Yeah, I, I, you know, the way things are happening in our culture, it is possible that it's that it's less than ten years. I, it could be. I should amend amend that to say five to fifteen, depending on on the breaks. I mean, you know, football in California was almost banned until bizarrely Gavin Newsom, you know, for twelve year olds and under. Uh, Gavin Newsom bizarrely came in to save the day to say he would veto that bill, and so that may have bought us a couple of years, but um, all the factors are there. Um, I mean, the quarterback is already effectively flag football. They just don't have flags on the quarterback. Um, But I think COVID, I think, I I think COVID was the, the stake through the heart of traditional football in many ways. COVID basically taught football who was boss or the liberals were able to teach football who was boss. Oh, you think your game is sacred? We're going to cancel your games willy-nilly. And oh, by the way, you're the most popular sport in America? We're not going to allow fans at outdoor arenas for for an entire year. And and no one's going to be able to tell us differently. And we're going to get away with this. We're going to crap in your face as the core fan, and the core fan will still stay with us. The core fan has been crapped on by the National Football League for decades in all sorts of different ways. I mean, especially in the realm of race. And let's be clear, race plays a role in this because the the majority of especially star players in the National Football League are black. That gives them extra protection in the media's mind. There's no question about that. 100%. If football, if football was a still a completely white sport like it was in the 1950s or whatever, I don't think the NFL would care as much about wussifying the game for the purposes of protecting the players because there wouldn't be the same political pressures. And let me go back to COVID real quick. The biggest thing that COVID did, and this is the death knell for traditional tackle football in my mind. COVID ended our sacred right to make our own risk-reward decisions about our personal health. And once that was taken away from us, football cannot survive as traditionally known because football is based in the idea that each individual player is making their own risk-reward decision, that the risk I'm taking for permanent or serious injury is is worth the reward I might get if I'm successful playing football. That was always accepted, but now it's no longer accepted because we've decided as a society overnight, oh yeah, by the way, you don't get to make those decisions. We're, we're smarter than you. We know what's better for you than you do. And so therefore we, as the nanny state, are going to decide for you what your risk reward decisions ought to be. And so post COVID there's, there's no tackle football anymore. Now it's always interesting to me how liberals work. I wish they were this good at creating stuff and governing because they're great at destroying stuff. They tend to know when they can't decapitate something right away, right? You can't decapitate tackle football overnight. This, this has to be a slow chemical castration period. All right. And that's what they've done with it. 
It's bit by bit, piece by piece, to where most people don't even really notice. They don't even notice. And by the way, this is going to sound conspiratorial. This is about this is about as conspiratorial as I get. But I watch these things very carefully. And I don't know if you agree, Marty. You know, whoever else wants to chime in, I'd be curious. It's your opinions. But last year, last football season, there were numerous viral moments, especially on Twitter, where NFL announcers or college announcers would call out a really bad officiating call for roughing the passer or whatever. That's ridiculous. You know, Troy Aikman, you know, we got to take the dresses off the quarterbacks, that kind of thing. That happened a lot last year. It hasn't happened at all this year. Not because we didn't get any wussified calls, but because I believe the word came down. Knock it the you fuck off. Be quiet That's about the officials. Right. Yeah. And if you yes. noticed, the MO now, the MO now, instead of, I don't know about that call, uh, Al, that was really bad. And uh, what's going on here? It's let's check in with the, the, the officiating uh, crew, uh, you know, expert. Let's talk, talk to the expert and see what he, well, what about this call? And of course the, the officiating expert that they have has a massive conflict of interest because he's, the, <laughs> he's there at the mercy of the league yeah. and he wants to, he doesn't want to make yep. the officials look bad. And so at best he's going to say, you know, I'm not sure that was the right call. That's like the worst you're going to get, which is not going to cause a clip to go viral. Troy Aikman saying, we got to take the dresses off the quarterbacks that causes a clip to go viral. So I believe, using common sense, I believe that the word came down from on high to the uh, football announcers, knock it off, because it's been universal. Do you agree? Do you agree that it's been universally different this year? Yes, I agree. And to drill down even further, they will criticize the daylights out of a pass interference call or a holding call. But when it comes to those roughing the passer, unnecessary roughness, they go quiet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Yeah, you can't do that. And it's yeah. been rampant. They don't mind saying, I don't see the hold. No, I don't either. Because there's there's nothing there. But when it's something, helm, oh, yeah, you can't do helmet to helmet there. I, right. My eyes are telling me no helmet hit a helmet. Like, it's this is this is all pretty. This is all about de. This is all about desensitizing, desensitizing the core fan. Because this is human well, nature. I mean, over time, people they're, they're not everyone's going to be like you, Marty, or, or me, or any of, the, of us here. The average fan isn't going to even notice the difference. It's going to be gradual. Yeah. It'll be gradual until, until one day we're going to see a quarterback be touched and we're going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. I mean, yeah. I mean that's, how, this is, that's how it's going to work. I even have a theory. I have a theory that the NFL network, this is when this is when we will know it's really over. I believe the NFL network will stop showing the Super Bowl highlights from you know the, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. That, that those highlight films will suddenly yeah. disappear because um, I mean, I mean, there there is there's there are so many examples, but I remember one in particular, the, the first Steelers Super Bowl with where my good friend Franco Harris was the MVP where they played the Vikings and there was a, a pass by, by the Vikings down to about the six yard line. And uh, Mel Blunt almost takes the receiver's head off, almost takes his head off. There's a NFL films puts a boing sound effect 
in, in yeah. the 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 play, <laughs> like it's it, like it's comical. The the ball pops up into the air, and the Steelers make a key interception. I mean, it's a game. The guy, that game was only sixteen six, even though the Steelers dominated the Vikings. Had that play happened today, Blunt gets kicked out of the game. Vikings have the ball first and goal, and it could be a completely different game. But I'm, what I'm my point is. People are going to look back on those things and go, what the hell was this? Like, you know, this like video of the gladiators in the Coliseum or something, uh, because this is a completely different uh, sport than what we currently have and what we will have in the future. And by the way, last point on this, I don't think it's a total coincidence. Now, there's a lot of reasons why this is not this sounds conspiratorial again. There's a lot of reasons why race is an issue. And, you know, generational shifts are an issue. But it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden all the new NFL head coaches are super young because guess what those guys aren't going to be objecting to? They're not going to be objecting to flag football, all right? It's not no. – Bill Belichick ain't ever going to go for flag fucking football, okay? No. But but these 40-year-old these 40 guys, that's a completely the, – the institutional sure. memory, the institutional memory sure. of what football was is very quickly – evaporating and once it's gone they can go in for the kill and say that for the good of the safety of their players we are we are instituting the, these permanent changes to the game of football so uh not to uh not to uh dominate the time here but there is something and i i was a little concerned about going here but i'm going to go ahead and do it because what the hell <laughs> um you mentioned culture and um Football is sort of a uh, a microcosm of society. What I've watched is, and I'm sure this is going to get a lot of hate, and I don't much care. The we push like heat. We need heat. The pushification of the American male. We have mm-hmm. we have changed what a man is, or at least it's trying to be changed what a man is. And I don't mean transgenderism. I mean soft and weak and pliable and not willing to say, hang on, that's wrong because they don't want to offend anybody. And it's permeating society. And football is a a good example of, like you said, this wouldn't happen in the 60s. Why? Because men would say, hold on a damn minute. You're not ruining football. Today, Mm -hmm. there's a a meeker, milder man coming up, uh, less able to not only defend others, but his own position. And uh, sorry, I didn't mean to bring this up. I probably shouldn't have, but I agree uh, totally that the wussification of the American yes. male. And it's not a small thing. It's it's everywhere. I I, I we're, we're, yeah, I agree. I think we have a little bit of a chicken or the egg situation here, though, with regarding football, because I think that foot, you know one begets the other. The wussification of football is emblematic of the wussification of the American male, and I think the wussification of football furthers the, the wussification of the American male because these are supposed to be our gladiators, right? These are supposed to be yeah. the toughest of the tough, and mm-hmm. it, uh, and even they are, you know, it's not that they themselves are wussified. I mean, we're still seeing when some of these ridiculous calls are made, you can tell the players are like, "What the hell was that?" I mean that that's ridiculous. Oh, I think in the, the in the, in the next so year. No, well, but I think even that'll change in the next couple of years because you're, the changeover in the National Football League 
is unbelievable. I mean, I was stunned. You guys probably didn't see this stat, but did you know, you know, the, the 49ers and the, and the Chiefs played a Super Bowl four years ago. There are only 17 players combined who played in that game who are still on the rosters for the 49ers and the Chiefs. Combined in four years, 85% of the roster is is turned over on two teams that were highly successful. It's unbelievable. I mean, uh, so the point, my point is that institutional memory is going to go away very fast. And this new normal, I mean, my gosh, in three or four years you know, from now, you, it's going to be hard to find a, a member of the National Football League who played even before COVID and, and, yeah. and even has any memory of, of what the National Football League or football was like before. So to your point, Marty, when this starts to collapse, I think it could happen very fast. But I, my sense is that there's just enough institutional memory and that they're succeeding so well doing this incrementally that it's going to take a little bit more time than, than maybe five years. But I, I agree that your bigger point about the wussification of the American male is enormous. And I think it's mainly because our society has become dominated by women. Now, there's some good in that. I'm, I'm, I'm married with two daughters, right? So I, I'm all pro-women. But like every pendulum in our society, we tend to move it too far. We went from too, too, probably too much of a male-dominated society to now being too much of a female-dominated society. We need to bring the pendulum back, but it's very difficult in this era where liberals dominate the media and, and Hollywood and everything else to bring a pendulum back. You, you can never do it in race because... At every point you pass with the pendulum, you're determining that that point was racist, right? So you can never go back there. Well, it's similar with gender because you're, every point you go through that pendulum is sexist. Um, now, I, you know, the, the only people that could theoretically save us are women themselves because there are some women out there, a good portion of women, who don't like this, who, who don't like it for their sons, who don't like it for society, who see what's happening. And those are the women that can theoretically, we're not going to be saved by men. Men aren't going to save themselves here. The only shot we have is that are there enough women uh, in order to save uh, our society from becoming completely wussified? I don't have an answer to that, but that's the potential. You're welcome. I was going to say, Christy, I've been watching her and and being in love with this woman, the the mother of three boys. Uh, She's a, yes, yes, yes. She's on camera right now, folks, but, Christine is one of those people who does not like the wussification of things. Rub some dirt on it. Let's go. Toughen up. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And and by the way, you know, I, I think something's happening with regard to coaching that is emblematic of everything else in society. I mean, when I look at what, you know, Bill Belichick not getting a job, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, the, the fact is that the fact that, you know, we have so little regard for experience, so little regard for our elders. Um, and so, and there's such an emphasis now on this whole, right. There's such an emphasis now on this thing called players coach. I can't stand player coaches because what that stands for me is I'm your buddy. I'm your pal. Uh, you know, aren't you know, kumbaya. Let's all, uh, you know, have from some fruit juices and orange slices after the soccer game, rah, rah, rah. That's all fine and dandy for, you know, a 10 year old soccer game. But it should not be the way of the National Football League or college football 
or even basketball. I mean, the Bobby Knights of the world literally now are dead. There's no room for them. And, and it, this filters down into teaching. It filters down into parenting. There is no way to be tough anymore uh, because the whole culture has gone soft. And I, did, I, I, will, I will say this one more time. I don't think I've ever said it on your show before, but it's one of my favorite lines. I will start believing in player coaches and soft coaching the first time that I see a pro football Hall of Fame speech where one of the inductees says, I just want to thank my coach was so easy on me. He was my buddy and my pal. He let me get away with everything I wanted to get away with. And that's why I'm here today. That has never happened. And that will never happen. And at least not until that's all that's left are player coaches. Instead, invariably, every single induction ceremony to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you have at least one, two, three, maybe all of them say, I want to thank that guy in high school who kicked my ass. I want to thank my college coach who kicked my ass, the pro coach who I hated at first, but I realized eventually he was right. That is the way to true excellence, but we can't do that anymore yeah. because I remember become so all the way back, all the way back to peewee football, 11 years old or something. Listen here, you little assholes. That was a piss poor practice and we're not doing that again. You guys are going to get your little asses and you're going to run, right? But we hardly lost a game and we worship that guy. He was a he was a god well, to us. He loved us. He he nurtured us with strength, not with uh very uh fe with feelings. He he nurtured us with strength and confidence and uh effort. Things like that were what was important to him and he gave us that sense of importance. And surprise of all surprises, it worked, and we loved the guy. Loved him. Yeah, that, that's been lost. You know, I had an interesting discussion with my wife this, this evening. Um, she's a longtime public school teacher. And she was so excited because today she found out that um, at least three of her students, she was, someone was going through a questionnaire, and at least three of her students had said that they were that she was their favorite teacher in the whole school. And my wife was so excited. And I said, okay, that's great. Congratulations. But shouldn't you at least be a little concerned that maybe you're a little too soft if you're, you're the, you're the favorite of everybody that, that you, you teach. And she was like, I don't care about, no one cares about that anymore. It's all about being the favorite. And, 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 and we were kind of joking with each other. She knew where I was coming from, but I thought that was, you know, and my wife is as old school as, anybody I know in, in the teaching profession and very, very conservative. Uh, and even she has bought into this idea of love me, love me. You know, it's awesome that uh, I, I think back, I, you know, when I think back to my teachers that were most influential to me, it wasn't my buddy. It was, was, wasn't somebody who was super easy on me. And I, and I think, you know, that's probably more evident in sports, but we're losing something here right before our eyes and nobody's even pointing it out. Forget about, lamenting it um i you know and, and by the way i think the media is going to lose something think about all of the coverage on espn over the years that is related to godlike coaches right godlike coaches bring eyeballs right and and it, they, they create narratives and they create content and they're killing them all off there ain't going to be any godlike coaches in the future they're, I mean, Nick Saban just basically got run off because of all the insanity in college football. Uh, you know, Bill Belichick can't get a job. 
um, you know, Jim Harbaugh escaped out of college football <laughs> after winning one national championship. I mean, they're 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 F1, killing yeah. the golden goose here. They're they're killing the golden goose, and they don't even seem to realize it or care. And it's don't it's care. quite amazing. Don't care. And just very quickly, I mentioned earlier in the show. I I, I only know him as Obama Swami, but John Ziegler, not not a conspiracy theorist. He is a coincidence theorist. And John, I wanted to thank you for introducing that phrase into my lexicon. Coincidence <laughs> theory. Okay, fair. I'll take credit for it. Whatever. That's fine. I like Obama Swami better, but okay, that's cool. Oh no, no that, that that's like oh, that, that's up there. But just co- coincidence theory. You, 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 I've turned some more heads with that one too. So, and uh, I, I want uh, just uh, as we uh, we wind things down here on this. Not it was originally supposed to be an Irish wake with John, you know, exiting the 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 public public uh, the podcast and public life. Uh, oh, but, shit, I already uh, forgot well, about that. I wanted to get into uh, on your last episode of uh, Death of Journalism. You brought on Steve Cortez, who used to be in yeah. Trump camp, went to the DeSantis camp, now back in the Trump camp. And again, I I love DeSantis. I, I wish he would have run a better campaign. I still love his ideals. I think of him for the future of the party if he can wade through the muck and the mire with things. But Cortez said some things that ray of light might be too strong uh, of a euphemism, but seemed to be like he could maybe be a productive bug in Trump's ear. Do you, where do you see that with, with Trump possibly being able to even nick a little bit into that guy's humongous ego for the betterment of the company of, of the country? Well, this was the source of a lot of conversation between Steve and me, uh, both before, during, and after his short stint with the Ron DeSantis Never Back Down Political Action Committee, because I told Steve, even though I'm a DeSantis supporter and I loathe Trump, I told Steve, do not do this. Do not go with Ron DeSantis, because by the time that deal was made, I knew DeSantis wasn't going to win. And this was after the first indictment of Donald Trump. It was very clear to me that you could not allow Donald Trump, to use a football term, to break containment. You know, once he breaks containment, it's over. You, you, you can't track him down. And so you let him out of, out of containment and he's going to be the nominee because the right the right wing media is going to rally around him. They, no one wants to be Glenn Beck 2016. And and DeSantis doesn't have a large enough national footprint. Anyway, part of my thinking and trying to persuade Steve to stay with Team Trump. And he was a very, very close advisor to Donald Trump. I mean. Steve believes that he's the reason why Trump came out in favor of and was able to save the 2020, to some extent, save the 2020 college football season. And that's how close Steve was to Trump. And my philosophy here was, Eric, which you've already alluded to, is, look, Trump doesn't have many people around him, one, that have a brain, uh, two, uh, give a damn about the country, three, have the balls to tell Trump when he's wrong. And Steve fit that category. And and I thought that was a valuable attribute to have surrounding Trump because it is possible even then and still is today that Trump could be the next president. And so I want Steve around Trump. And I knew that if he went to DeSantis, that that bridge was probably going to be blown up. Now, with Trump, you never know, is the bridge really blown up or not? (laughs) Because sometimes Trump, you know, because he loves drama, Sometimes 
Trump will ignore that. My gut tells me the bridge is probably too uh, burned. Um, not necessarily because of Trump, because I think Trump likes Steve. I think there are other people in the Trump camp who were so incensed by Steve going to DeSantis that it would prevent Steve from ever being able to go back to Trump in a way that would be effective. I'm not saying he wouldn't get a job, you know, in the mailroom or whatever. Um, I, I'm saying that he would, I, I don't think he would likely, and I could be wrong and I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I think it's unlikely you're going to see him back in a position where he can be as effective as he was, which is a shame, but my conscience is clear on that because much to his surprise, and as you heard the interview, Eric, he was quite shocked given the fact that I'm a DeSantis fan and I, I loathe Trump. I did my very best. I did. I went out on a limb. I said, do not do this. In fact, he had already signed the deal. And I said, is it possible for you to back out? Because it was, it was clear that some, it wasn't right, that things were not right in it never backed down, which clearly turned out to be the case. And so um, that's the situation with Steve. And, you know, I, I, I hope it works out for him, but I'm, I'm not, I'm, as usual, I'm not particularly optimistic. Well, with, with that in mind, you know, uh, we're both two, two uh, Pennsylvania expatriates, patriotic expatriates. And do, do you see any way for uh, freedom lovers to navigate in the event that shit hits the fan yet again, I, whether it's Trump or, or Biden? How, how do we navigate through that? If you're I, I part of why I'm planning on leaving public life is I just can't deal with this 2024 election. If that's where you're headed with this, I, I don't understand. I, I don't yeah. see I, I don't see I don't see a path. I, I don't I do not see a, a viable path. I mean, there's there, you know, and by the way, you know, if Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the third choice, I usually last couple of election cycles, I voted for the libertarian candidate. If he's the libertarian candidate, I'm not sure I could do that either uh, because he's nuts. I mean, he's completely nuts. I mean, are we just going to forget about the fact that the guy was a heroin addict for 14 years, that his first wife committed suicide because he was a heroin addict, that he believes all sorts of completely insane things, even by Trump standards? Just because you hate the vaccines doesn't mean that Robert Kennedy Jr. is somehow a, a sensible guy. He's not. He's insane. So, so we have a guy... You know, with no brain in Joe Biden, a guy with no heart in, in Donald Trump and a guy who can't speak in, in Robert Kennedy. These are our three choices for, for president. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Um, and I just don't see a path. I, I mean, if, if Biden is elected, he will absolutely resign from office probably in January of 2027 so that Kamala Harris can run for two terms after taking over. Um, and that's assuming he's able to get that far. I'm not sure that he will be. And if Trump is elected, it's going to be a massive shit show. I mean, you might like some of the things that happen, but I can assure you there's going to be lots of bad stuff. And by the way, if Trump gets elected with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, which is not impossible, that is not impossible. If that happens, that's the worst scenario I can possibly think of. Because Trump's a lifelong Democrat. He will turn into a full-on Democrat. He will turn his fire on, quote-unquote, establishment Republicans. His mm -hmm. base doesn't give a damn about Republicans. The, 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 the most liberal presidency would be Trump with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. 
Mark my words. Take that, Richard Nixon. And uh, I want to jump uh, very quickly back in. Uh, Christine has a question in the chat room. Um, how long until there's an insurrection of the NFL similar to LIV live coming after the PGA? Well, that can't happen um, because the NFL is simply too big and has too much of a, a monopoly and it would cost way too much money. What made the PGA Tour very vulnerable to live and a kamikaze attack from the Saudi royal family is that the PGA Tour is a charity. People don't understand that. It's a charity. It's literally a 501c3. Now, it's a you know very lucrative charity, but it's a charity, all right? And it doesn't cost a lot of money to put on a golf tournament. It costs a boatload of money to put on an NFL football game. So, so the Saudi royal family was able to come in and pay ridiculous way, 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 way above market prices, simply not because they were trying to create a viable economic alternative to the PGA Tour. No, they're losing massive amounts of money on Live, but they don't care because they're the Saudis. <laughs> they have an unlimited pit of money. <laughs> and so this was an ego move, a kamikaze attack on the PGA Tour, which was vulnerable to this because of the nature of the players being individual contractors as opposed to being members of a union and members of a team. And, um, and, and frankly, you know, I, I, don't, I think the PGA Tour is completely screwed. I think golf is is basically screwed by all this. It, it's funny, you know, that Christine mentions football. If the Saudi royal family had really wanted to fuck with America for, and get the bang for their buck, now they, they've, they've been very successful in disrupting the PGA Tour. They could have, oh, they could have completely overtaken college football. They still could today if they wanted to. Once NIL became legalized in college football, the Saudi royal family could have dictated everything that happens in college football. They could have made, you know, whole, you know, the smallest Division One school in America a national champion in two years if they had yeah. wanted to. They, that, I mean, if they really wanted to create chaos. That it's amazing to me that nobody advised the royal family to do that. My guess is because they like golf and because they have golf in the culture there that they, they saw this as the vulnerable attack subject, but college football was where the Saudis really could have made their mark if they wanted to create chaos in American culture. Yeah. The transfer portal took care of that by the, by themselves, but see, and folks, th these are the insights that we are going to be missing. I especially am going to be missing <laughs> in the event that the black swan does not happen. So it's, it's uh, Jim. I don't uh, John, what you got for John while we got him? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going back to 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 November. You know, I'm I'm with you. I don't really really see a a really positive outcome. Do you think there are forces that you know, if Trump Trump does win again, do you think there there are some some forces that can kind of push him in the right direction uh, when the time comes? Other than other than uh, uh, Steve. Or do you I feel like he's just he's just on a on a path to where he's where he wants to go in November and, and nobody's really well, gonna move him aside I mean, from that? 
I'm, I'm, I'm open to suggestions on who, who would be that person or those people, but I don't see it. I mean, his literal campaign slogan is I am your retribution. I am your retribution. That is literally his campaign slogan. He will not have to run for reelection. He's going to be, if he wins, which by the way, I don't think he's going to win, but if he were to win, you know, he'll be 78 years old. He'll be pissed off as all hell, having lost hundreds of millions of dollars in these bogus civil suits against him. He, it is going to be a shit show of epic proportions. He is not going to be president for you or for me or for anyone else. He, this is going to be one last go at him and his massive ego and taking retribution on everybody, including, and by the way, maybe at the forefront of his list, the Republican Party itself. This is going to be a shit show if he ever is elected again, which I don't think he will be, but because of Joe Biden's you know, age and, and obviously having some semblance of dementia, all bets are off because it is possible that it's not going to be the Democrats and the media will not be able to carry Joe over the finish line. I'll see y'all in Texas. That's where we're moving. <laughs> yeah, I tried to convince my wife to Maybe buy some not. property in, in uh, Florida. I'm being but told she, no. She, I'm, uh, I'm being waved off. No Texas. <laughs> well, the they're going to take Texas in about 10, Dallas years. Music scene. I'm sorry, Jay, you're, you're saying you're talking to your I, wife about. I, I tried to convince my wife first to buy some property in Florida, but I got the, I got the veto, um, you know, cause I, I think I got to get the hell out of California before it completely falls, but we've got in-laws that are still alive and kicking. So, um, yeah. and so that's well, not going to happen, here. but I, I would, you know, I'm, I'm not sure Texas, I mean, Texas is putting up a pretty good fight right now. Thanks to governor Abbott. But I, I agree with those kind of like the NFL 10 to 15 years from now, I think Texas is gone. And then, you know, once that happens, you know, Katie bar the door. I'm glad I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. So, well, again, folks, just uh, John, thanks so much for stopping by. You, uh, in the event that the black swan does not happen, you, your, your insights are going to be tremendously missed. Thank you for everything that you've done to, to fill our heads with, with knowledge and, and your, your tenacity with the Penn State thing or with, with uh, taking on journalism and showing people how flawed that is, and how, it, how broken it's become. And, uh, you know, you're, you're always welcome here for any guest appearances on all over the place. Yeah, if Even you ever the, get an the, itch, the, the, the public on by our little show. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. Thanks so much, guys. I Thanks for all the kind words and uh, keep in touch. Will do. And, uh, Thanks again, John. And uh, folks, be sure you uh, check out uh, while you can over at uh, Spotify and iTunes. Check out John on his podcast, Death of Journalism or With the Benefit of Hindsight. We'll be back next week with more All Over the Place. You've been listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. If you like what you've been listening to, and you know that you have, be sure to subscribe, like, and share at YouTube, Spotify, or your preferred platform. We thank you for your support. The opinions expressed by the guests are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the hosts or the producer.